And hello, hello out there, and welcome to an extra special edition of the Pinkie Pod. Now, if you've been listening to me for any length of time, or you know me from social media, and you've known me for a little bit, you might not even need to have known me for very long if you've just looked at my stuff lately. I am really into vampires. I write vampire fiction. My omnibus is coming out, Paris Immortal Eternal Edition on Halloween. It's all set up. There's a pre-order for the Kindle, if you like. Five volumes of a series that I started in 2008. And I mention this because today's episode is all about vampires. (laughs) And honestly, I'm not really uh, scared of vampires, are you? Let's face it. There are those of us who find even the frightening aspects of vampires to be disgustingly sexy. What can I say? We're all a little weird here, and I'm spooky all season. But they're making a huge resurgence in pop culture thanks to AMC Plus and AMC Interview with the Vampire. Oh my god, people, if you don't know that show, Why are you not watching it? It is the reason to subscribe to AMC+. In fact, it is the reason I subscribed to AMC+. And no, I am not getting paid for this. It's not a, a partnership. It's not a sponsorship. It is sincerely the reason you should have AMC+. And from what I can tell, they are going to do... It, I, I know they're hoping to do quite a lot of Anne Rice's books. They purchased rights to at least 18 of the books, as I recall, which means they could probably cover every single bit of the Vampire Chronicles. I saw a little teaser the other day that the Mayfair Witches, so they've already been working on this. Uh, They've already been working on it. Mayfair Witches, another of her series that does eventually cross over with the vampires, comes out in January. Interview with the Vampire that show itself was renewed for a second season three days before it ever even premiered, which is unheard of. That means that the critics with their previewed uh, episodes that they get before the rest of us mere mortals must have really loved it. And I think I can vouch for that because there are very good reviews of it. I can't say enough good things about it. I know some people are still uh, trepidatious because they have made some changes. I'm here to tell you that the changes work. And I'm here to tell you that it's more loyal to the book than the movie that we all probably enjoyed quite a bit from the 90s. But that movie made a ton of changes, y'all. It made a ton of changes. But I think we forgave it in some respects because it was still a beautiful movie. But the show, believe it or not, even for the change of time period and and a few other things, is actually more faithful. I know some people will still disagree with me. But moving on, let me tell you that this is the most perfect representation of Lestat that I have ever seen. And Sam Reed should win every freaking award. (laughs) There should be a special vampire award. 
And Jacob Anderson, who plays Louis, is just stunning. They are, everybody is just wonderful. And if you don't know who Jacob is, if you ever watched Game of Thrones, you know him as Grey Worm. And this could not be farther from that character. I, I smell Emmys. I smell Golden Globes. I smell decadence and sensuality and sex and blood and oh. They are creating an entire immortal universe. And that is in the credits at the beginning. Kind of like Marvel has the Marvel Universe. Well, apparently they're doing an immortal universe. What a time to be alive! What a time to be alive for those of us who love all of this and always have. So, that is just another reason to be doing a vampire episode. But what is Halloween? What is life without vampires? I've done some episodes that touch upon vampires. Uh, the one just the most recent episode before this fangs for listening I told you of some very different types of vampires you know Asian vampires hopping vampires how fucking creepy is that okay I don't think that's a particular vampire that I find sexy I admit it uh, I like the human type of vampires the humanized vampires and all of the psychology you can explore and how they are really just amplified versions of ourselves that's my style of vampires Certainly, I would have to say Anne Rice uh, was one of the early influences on me. Of course, I've read a shit ton since then. I'm so excited that they're coming back. I'm kind of really tired of zombies for a long time. They were never my favorite. Yes, some of the zombie stuff is fun, but this is so much better. Where shall we begin then? Well, today I thought I would give you more of a shall I say, clinical point of view, uh, 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 a, a dictionary sort of podcast. Now, is that what I'm trying to say? Who knows? I am honestly just very much winging this at the moment. I don't have a script as I'm all of this that I've said so far is not on a script. I wrote a couple of notes and then a lot of my information is going to come from the vampire book, which is the Encyclopedia of the Undead. There's three editions of it. I have the second edition. The third edition, I think it was 2010. I don't think it, they've updated it since then. Aside from having indexes and listings of all vampire literature, all films, TV shows, they have some other lore about it. It goes alphabetically like uh, uh, resource materials like you know um, that's not what I'm trying to say I told you I'm winging this um, what am I trying to say was that did you hear that I'm snapping my fingers like come on give it to me you know but well, well fuck it basically it's an encyclopedia I don't know what the hell I'm trying to say resources for 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 uh, term papers there's a word I'm looking for help help anyone if this was live I'd be like call in and help me Fuck it. Whatever. Never mind. <laughs> so we're going to be... And I got my wine, because this would not be appropriate without some red wine. Let me go to the few of the notes that I did write. What is a vampire, anyway? Well, in the simplest dictionary terms, it is a reanimated corpse that drinks blood to retain that quote-unquote life status. But not all vampires actually fit this mold. Some are or were disembodied spirits that were often classified as demonic, such as your legends in Indian mythologies and maybe the Lamia, 
You've heard of that in Greece. So they can be like ghosts. Sometimes they're alien. Sometimes they are very human, save for the fact that they drink blood. And when I say human, I don't just mean, as I said, humanized vampires. Vampires that eat food and do everything else normally, but they happen to drink blood. Uh, the Hunger, if you remember, David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, beautiful film, is like that. You have Jerry Dandridge from Fright Night. Welcome to Fright Night. For real. <laughs> he ate fruit all the time, which, by the way, I'm pretty sure was sort of a little wink at fruit bats. But I digress. But am I really? Because this is all about vampires. You have vampire-like creatures that exist across most cultures. Not all, but most. And aside from drinking blood, they may also be energy vampires. But it's all life force. Blood, life force. And if you listen to the last podcast, you know that the Asian ones, they take your chi, life force. Very scary vampires, by the way. Hopping. I just can't imagine this thing hopping at me. <laughs> no, not sexy. No, please give me Lestat. Lestat, please do not hop. You have vampires who prefer to attack children. Lilith comes to mind. You have those the, who only uh, like young women. But of course, people uh, or vampires like Lestat are non-discriminatory. And if you know, you know. In African cultures and African tribes, there really is, is one of the areas where they really didn't have vampire legends. However, there are vampire-like traits that are attributed to their witches. So even though they don't call them vampires, you can kind of see it in there. Can we actually even trace the origins of vampires? Well, it's quite likely that they existed before written accounts, but I am going to now start this off with a little bit of a high point of timeline, if you will. Some of this is actually going to, uh, I'm, I'm including it just because I think it's interesting and uh, it makes an, it just fits into this whole timeline they have in the book. So prehistory, of course, you had vampire beliefs and myths in cultures around the world and it just wasn't really recorded, but it does exist. You have by 1047, 1047 the year, the first appearance in written form of the word upir, if I'm saying that correctly, and I'm probably not, which is an early form of the word that later becomes vampire. And it's in a document that refers to a Russian prince as upir vichy, or wicked vampire. In 1190, Walter Mapp has a book, Dinaji Kralium, which includes accounts of vampire-like beings in England. 1196, William of Newburgh's Chronicles records several stories of vampire-like revenants in England. 1428-29, Vlad Chepish, the son of Vlad Dracul, is born. Chepish means impaler. Vlad Chepish becomes Prince of Wallachia and moves to Turgovist. In 1442, oh, that was 1436, I think I didn't say. In 1442, Vlad Chepish is imprisoned with his father by the Turks. In 1443, Vlad Chepish becomes a hostage of the Turks 
1447, Vlad Dracul is beheaded. That's his father. I know this might be, I want to clarify, that's his father. And as far as I know, Dracula is son of. So this is Vlad Sr., okay? 1448, Vlad the Younger briefly attains the Wallachian throne. He's then dethroned and goes to Moldavia and becomes friends with someone named Prince Stefan. In 1451, Vlad and Stefan flee to Transylvania. I'm going to skip here. Uh, 1456, Jean Hanyadi assists Vlad Chepis to attain his, reattain, you know, the Wallachian throne. 1458, in a, uh, a name that will be familiar to people who love the Underworld series, Matthias Corvinus succeeds Jean Hanyadi as King of Hungary. So Corvinus is king. 1459, there's an Easter massacre of the boyars and the rebuilding of Dracula's castle. Bucharest is established as a second governmental center. 1460, there's an attack in Brazov, Romania. 1461, a campaign against the Turkish settlements along the Danube, and they retreat then to Turkovist. 1462, following a battle at Dracula's castle, Vlad flees to Transylvania, where he begins 13 years of imprisonment. 1475, summer wars in Serbia against Turks take place. Vlad resumes the throne of Wallachia. 1476-77, Vlad is assassinated. And as I recall, no one knows where his body is, which just makes it even more fun to try to work with that legend. In 1560, Elizabeth Bathory is born, the Countess of Blood. In 1610, she is arrested for killing several hundred people and bathing in their blood. She is convicted and sentenced to life in prison, but dies a mere four, uh, four years later, 1614. 1645, Leo Alacius finishes writing the first modern treatment of vampires, Di Grecorin Odi Curandum. I'm never going to say that right, so I'm just going to fucking make fun of it. Sorry. I'm sorry, Leo. I don't think he cares. He's dead. In 1657, Francois, and I think it's Friar, as a matter of fact, Francois Richard's Relation de ce qui s'est passé à Saint-Aurigny, Ile de l'Archipel, links vampirism and witchcraft. Because, of course, because you got to be persecuting somebody. 1672, you have a wave of vampire hysteria through Istra, which, and now I need to, <clears throat> here come the papers. Istra is a peninsula in the Adriatic Sea, which is shared by Croatia, Slovenia, and Italy, to give you an idea of where that is. 1679, a German vampire text, Die Mastication Motorum, and yes, even though it's German, it seems to be written in French, by Philip Rohr is written, 1710, vampire hysteria sweeps through East Prussia, 1725. It returns to East Prussia. There must have been a slight reprieve. 1725 to 30, vampire hysteria lingers in Hungary. 1725 to 32, the wave of vampire hysteria in Austrian Serbia produces the famous cases of Peter Plagajowicz and Arnold Paul. And I feel like I have mentioned them before in other episodes. But maybe we can do a little Google roulette on that later. Let's mm, 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 mark that page. That's me 
doing. I don't know what. The word vampire with a Y enters the English language in 1734 in translations of German accounts of the European waves of vampire hysteria. 1744, Cardinal Giuseppe de Vanzatti publish, publishes his treatise Dissertation sopra i vampiri. 1746, Dom Augustin Comet publishes his treatise on vampires, Dissertation sur les apparitions des anges, des démons et des épis, et sur les revenants et vampires de Andri, de Bohème, de Moravie et de Silesie. Now, I think I can, un I can understand most of this. Dissertations on the uh, apparitions of angels and demons and spirits, revenants, vampires of Hungary, Bohemia, uh, probably Morovia, and I don't know what the last one is, but I kind of want to go Sicily, but I kind of doubt it. <laughs> it could be, though. Silesia. It probably is. 1748, the first modern vampire poem, De Vampir, V-A-M-P-I-R, is published by Heinrich August Ossenfelder. 1750... Not, no, 1750, another wave of vampire hysteria occurs in East Prussia. Prussia just got it going on. They're like, oh my god, vampires, vampires, everywhere I look, vampires. 1756, vampire hysteria peaks in Wallachia, which of course was the home of Vlad Chepish for a while. 1772, vampire hysteria occurs in Russia. 1797, Goth G-O-E-T-H-E-S, Bride of Corinth, which is a poem concerning a vampire, is published. 1798 to 1800, Samuel Taylor Coleridge writes Christabel, which is now conceded to be the first vampire poem in English. In 1800, also, you have I Vampiri, which is an opera by Silvestro de Palma, which opens in Milan, Italy. Talaba, in 1801, by Robert Southey, Sothi is the first poem to mention the vampire in English. But you see, they're just laying out the timeline here, but I need to back up. Christabel has now taken the place of that to be the first one. People have conceded that it probably is. So uh, there's probably still arguments about it. 1810 reports of sheep being killed by having their jugular veins cut and their blood drains circulate through northern England. Also, The Vampire by John Stagg is an early vampire poem published. 1813, we get to someone I've mentioned before, Lord Byron. His poem, La Guerre, includes the hero's encounter with a vampire. 1819, and I have done an episode on this. Give credit where credit is due. Jean Polidori, The Vampire, is the first vampire story in English, Publi is published in the April issue of New Monthly Magazine. John Keats composes The Lamia, which is a poem built on ancient Greek legends. 1820, Lord Ruthin ou les Vampires by Cyprien Barad is published anonymously in Paris. June 13, Le Vampire is a play by Charles Nodier, opens at Theatre de la Porte Saint-Martin in Paris. I believe I touched upon those for my Grand Guignol episode. In August, The Vampire or The Bride of the Isles, which is a translation of Nodier's play by James R. Planchet, opens in London. 1829, March, Heinrich Marschner's opera Der Vampire, which is based on Nodier's story, opens in Leipzig. 1841, Alexei Tolstoy, publishes a short story, Upyr, U-P-Y-R, while he's living in Paris. 
It's the first modern vampire story by a Russian, and Tolstoy is a heavyweight in literature. 1847. Bram Stoker is born. Varney the Vampire begins a lengthy serialization, and I have the entire collection, my dear listeners. And the book that I have is already a hefty, I don't know, 1,500, 1,600 pages, and it's very, very tiny print. I'm guessing if it was done like most books where people could actually read it without a magnifying glass, it would be 2,500 pages. This was uh, released uh, as like weekly penny dreadfuls. I have not read all of it yet. One of these days I will set to it with some magnifying glasses. Even my, even my bifocals, it's difficult. I, okay, it's not quite that tiny, but it's pretty freaking small. Normal font is 12 point Times New Roman, and I'm guessing this is eight. That's, that's significant, frankly. It's significant. 1851. Alexandre Dumas, whom you know for the Three Musketeers and other fine stories, Père Dumas, Père Dumas from, from uh, Paris, his final dramatic work, Le Vampire, opens in Paris. 1854. The case of vampirism in the Ray family of Jewett, Connecticut, is published in local newspapers. There's another one we may have to Google roulette. Because I don't know that one. Here's one that I bring up to people all the time because it's responsible for all of your lesbian uh, vampire films, especially the, the Hammer, Hammer Time, Hammer Horror films. 1872 Carmilla, and I have copies of these, is written by Sheridan Le Fanu. In Italy, Vincenzo Vozzini is convicted of murdering two people and drinking their blood. And by the way, Carmilla is in a collection I have, the, bo uh, the Book of Vampires. I have another one that has a bunch of stories in it. Some of them may also be con contained uh, in this volume that I'm looking at. 1874 reports from Seven Ireland tell of sheep having their throats cut and their blood drained. Emily Gerard's Land Beyond the Forest is published in 1888. It becomes a major source of information about Transylvania for Bram Stoker and Dracula. 1894 H.G. Wells' short story The Flowering of the Strange Orchid is a precursor to science fiction vampire stories. 1897 Dracula by Bram Stoker is published in England. The Vampire by Rudyard Kipling is also the inspiration for the creation of the vamp as a stereotypical character on stage and screen in the same year. 1912. The Secrets of House Number no. 5, possibly the first vampire film, is produced in Great Britain. 1913. Dracula's Guest by Stoker, Bram Stoker, is published. 1920. Dracula, the first film based on the novel, is made in Russian. No copy survives. Sorry, we cannot watch it. God damn it. 1921, Hungarian filmmakers produce a version of Dracula, which I believe I've seen. 1922, Nosferatu, a German-made silent film produced by Prana Films, is the third attempt to film Dracula. Side note unauthorized Bram Stoker's widow sued over it the copies were supposed to be destroyed but someone thankfully saved a couple of those and I have two of them and you've all seen it at this point because it is out of copyright and she can't really do anything about it anymore because she's dead 
And you've you've seen you've seen it. That's where you get the bald head and the pointy ears and the rat fangs and the big claws. And if you watch Interview with the Vampire, they actually <laughs> spoiler alert. Pause or skip ahead for this part. <laughs> By the time we get to uh, is it episode four? We have Lestat, Louis, and uh, Claudia are are watching a movie. And it's Nosferatu, and they are laughing their immortal asses off. And it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen because they think it's hilarious. Okay? Does that make you want to watch it? Because it's freaking funny. We have stage versions of Dracula opening in 1924 in Germany. Uh, Fritz Harman of Hanover, Germany is arrested, tried, and convicted of killing more than 20 people in a vampiric crime spree. Sherlock Holmes has his only encounter with a vampire in The Case of the Sussex Vampire. This is how popular it's starting to get, right? Even Sherlock Holmes or author Arthur Conan Doyle. It's probably in my collection of Sherlock Holmes stories somewhere. I have the hardcover over here to my left. 1927, February 14, a stage version of Dracula debuts in the Little Theatre in London. In October, an American version of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, yes, it's Bela, I also have done an episode on him specifically, opens at Fulton Theater in New York City. Because, side note, if you did not listen to that podcast episode, Bela only ever did one, count them, one vampire film. And it's the one that you have seen if you are a fan. And that is the only time he ever played Dracula in a film, but he did it on stage several times, much like later on, Frank Langella, who has done one of my favorite versions as well. He played it on stage. You have Lon Chaney in London After Midnight, which is the first full-length vampire feature film, it says here. London After Midnight, as I recall, is a film that a lot of people have trouble finding copies of. If you do find it, give it a watch. It's, it's, it's obscure and it's rare, and I believe somebody has finally put most of it back together. I don't know the entire backstory behind it, but I feel like I'm remembering that it had been kind of disintegrated or just it just didn't uh, age well in the canisters, you know, uh, it wasn't preserved, but somebody had tried to put it back together. So if you have a chance, watch it. 1928, the first edition of Montague Summers' influenced work, The Vampire, His Kith and Kin, appears in, in England. 1929, the same Montague Summers' second vampire book, The Vampire in Europe, is published. 1931, there's a Spanish film version of Dracula in January, which is then previewed. February, the American uh, film version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi premieres at the Roxy Theater in New York City. Uh, also, you have Peter Kutten of Dusseldorf, Germany, who is executed after being found guilty of murdering a number of people in a vampiric killing spree. 1932, there is a highly acclaimed movie, Vampire, directed by Carl Theodor Dreyer, and it is released, and I have seen it, and it's really cool. 1936, Dracula's Daughter is released by Universal Pictures. 1942, A.E. Van Vogt's Asylum is the first story about an alien vampire. 1943, Son of Dracula, which stars Lon Chaney Jr. as Dracula, is, uh, comes out. 
1944. John Carradine actually plays Dracula for the first time in Horror of Frankenstein. In 1953, Dracula with a K, Istanbul, is a Turkish film adaptation of Dracula, which is released. Eerie number eight includes the first comic book adaptation of Dracula. In 1954, for the comic book geeks, and some of you may know this, the comics code banishes vampires from comics books. I don't know why, but there's a little... I'm not getting into all of this. It's too much shit to try to cover. It would take like a 20-episode series. I'm just giving you interesting little highlights. I Am Legend also comes out. Um, it's Richard Matheson, and he presents vampirism as a disease that alters the body. 1956 sees John Carradine return as Dracula in the first television adaptation of the play for Matinee Theater. Kyuketsukiga is the first Japanese vampire film, which is also released in 1956. 1957, the first Italian vampire movie, I Vampiri, which yes, has the same name as that play, is released. American producer Roger Corman makes his first science fiction vampire movie, Not of This Earth. El Vampiro with German Robles is the first of a new wave of Mexican vampire films. 1958, Hammer Films in Great Britain initiates a new wave of interest in vampires with the first of its Dracula films, which is released in the United States as The Horror of Dracula and the Great Christopher Lee. And of course, I own that one. First issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland signals a new interest in horror films in the United States. 1959, Plan 9 from Outer Space will be Bela Lugosi's last film. And also Ed Wood's, well, yeah, that's another, that's a whole other subject. 1961, The Bad Flower is the first Korean adaptation of Dracula. 1962, The Count Dracula Society is founded in Los Angeles by Donald Reed. 1964, Parc de Joulas, Park of Games, and I probably said that wrong, Juelos, Parc de Juelos is the first Spanish-made vampire movie. 1964, The Munsters and the Adam Family, two horror comedies with vampire characters, open in the fall television season. 1965 sees Jean Youngson, who founds the Count Dracula fan club. The Munsters, based on the television show of the same name, is the first comic book series featuring a vampire character. So I guess the code was dropped. <laughs> Dark Shadows debuts on ABC afternoon television as a soap opera in 1966. 1967 in April, episode 210 of Dark Shadows is when vampire Barnabas Collins makes his first appearance. And that is when the show got popular, y'all. Popular, because it, it, it was okay. It wasn't doing that great. But when they tossed in the vampire, everyone was interested. And I have seen this in a revival that came later with Barnabas Collins. You can also find it. And then it was later sort of redone with, what's his name? Is it, no, not Ben Cross. Someone else did it later in the 80s. I maybe, actually it was Ben Cross. Yes, it was. 1969, the first issue of Vampirella, the longest running vampire comic book to date, is released. Denholm Elliott plays the title role in a BBC television production of Dracula. And Does Dracula Really Suck, a.k.a. Dracula and the Boys, is released as the first gay 
vampire movie. And I'm sure they totally meant to make a, a double entendre of a pun. Wow. 1970. Christopher Lee stars in El Conde Dracula, the Spanish film adaptation of Dracula. Sean Manchester founds the Vampire Research Society. 1971 sees Marvel comic release the first copy of a post-comics code vampire comic book, The Tomb of Dracula. Morbius, the living vampire, is the first new vampire character introduced after the revision of the comics code which allowed vampires to reappear in comic books. 1972, The Night Stalker with Darren McGavin, which had some scenes filmed here in Seattle in the Seattle Underground Tour, was the most watched television movie to that point in time. Vampire Kung Fu is released in Hong Kong as the first of a string of vampire martial arts films. In Search of Dracula by Raymond T. McNally and Radu Florescu introduces Vlad the Impaler, the historical Dracula, in name that is, to the world of contemporary vampire fans. A Dream of Dracula by Leonard Wolf complements McNally's and Florescu's effort in calling attention to vampire lore. True Vampires of History by Donald Glitt is the first attempt to assemble the stories of all the historical vampire figures. Stephen Kaplan founds the Vampire Research Center. 1973, Dan Curtis Productions version of Dracula, 1973, stars Jack Palance in a made-for-television movie. Nancy Garden's Vampires launches a wave of juvenile literature for children and youth. 1975, Fred Saberhagen proposes viewing Dracula as a hero rather than a villain in the Dracula tape. The World of Dark Shadows is founded as the first Dark Shadows fan scene. 1976, Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice is published. Side note, with uh, a lot of this coming back into, uh, I mean, a lot of people, of course, are already Anne Rice fans, but it's coming back into uh, huge, you know, the forefront um, because of the TV series. It was not initially well received when it came out. Certainly not popular like it is now. As I understand it, we can thank a lot of the gay community for making sure the interview with the vampire attained a cult status and then became popular because they saw the subtext and they were so excited to see themselves, you know, and basically what is a gay relationship, but it wasn't necessarily explicit. And I think we might feel like it's that way because it has spawned how many chronicles and she did lean into it a little more later, but that initial one, it's, it's, it's more of a subtext. But of course, we all knew better, right? We all knew better. And one of the great things about the series is they're like, yes, we know it's a love story. And they went for it. So again, if you were hoping to finally see Lestat and Louis in a proper relationship, well, <laughs> an angsty relationship, there's your other reason to watch the show. They are not shying away from it. But at the time, it was not a popular uh, novel. Also, you have um, Stephen King being nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Salem's Lot. ShadowCon, the first National Dark Shadows convention, is organized by Dark Shadows fan. This is all 1976. 1977, a new dramatic version of Dracula opens on Broadway starring Frank Langella, one of my personal favorites. I, I have like a, a um, landmark films and different things in my mind that, that made lasting impressions on the genre. Frank Langella is one of them. Frank brought the sex, okay? Frank brought the sexy 
and also those really crazy wiggly eyes that he is not a tick he was actually able to do that he to to hypnotize people i think was the idea but he brought the sexy while also still being a little scary because christopher lee you might disagree with me maybe uh, maybe you just like christopher lee but his dracula was not trying to be sexy in the slightest frank langella's was charming and sexy and he did this bat thing with his fingers. You should watch the behind the scenes sometimes. You know I own all of these D- DVDs, my dears. You know I do. You have Louis Jordan in the title role in Count Dracula, a three-hour version of Bram Stoker's book on BBC television. Yes, I also own that. I told you I was into it. 1978, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough's Hotel Transylvania joins the volumes of Fred Saberhagen and Anne Rice as a major, a third major effort to begin a reappraisal of the vampire myth in the decade. Eric Held and Dorothy Nixon found the Vampire Information Exchange. You should read um, about the Count Saint Germain, which is what Chelsea has done. I believe she has about 20, 25 volumes about him now. They do not have to be read in order. What she does is choose a different time frame for him and go with the story. Hotel Transylvania is in Paris. I have the most awesome 1970s paperback version with the cheesy. Well, it's not cheesy. It's kind of pretty, but you know, with the older cover. And I've also done episodes on a Count St. Germain that people believe really might have been a vampire. You can go back and find that. Um, And that is some of her inspiration. It's really cool. So if you've never read her, please pick up one of her books. She, She really should be more famous as well. 1979, because of the success of the Broadway production, Universal Pictures remakes Dracula in 1979, starring Frank Langella. The band Bauhaus, recording of Bela Lugosi is Dead and I Have Seen Them Live, becomes the first hit of the new gothic rock music movement. Shadowgram is founded as a Dark Shadows fanzine. 1980, the Bram Stoker Society is founded in Dublin, Ireland. Richard Chase, the so-called Dracula killer in Sacramento, California, commits suicide in prison. The World Federation of Dark Shadows Clubs, now the Dark Shadows official fan club, is founded. 1983, in a December issue of Doctor Strange, Marvel Comics' ace occultist kills all the vampires in the world, thus banishing them from Marvel Comics for the next six years. Dark Shadows Festival is founded to host an annual Dark Shadows convention. 1985, after a long wait... The Vampire Lestat by Anne Rice is published, and that one becomes a bestseller. Side note from me, it is my firm belief, and I always tell people this, that Interview with the Vampire and The Vampire Lestat should always be read almost as one volume. They should always be read back to back. You should never just have one of them. Because for one thing, you get both sides of the story. And for another, that's where Lestat really comes out. And you see a different, you see a different Lestat. Having so many years between it, it's possible that, you know, maybe she didn't think it was going to be a series, right? Who knows what she was thinking? I, she, she may have spoken of it. I'm, I kind of lost track of keeping up with all of that after several years. I think that maybe during that time, you know, she got really close to Lestat. And I know, I think that most of us realize she worked through probably several personal issues in her novels and she always spoke of Lestat as a real person really and I'm you know I think it's safe to say he was her favorite and 
I just think he must have grew over that time, right? Maybe she changed her mind how she wanted him to appear, or maybe it was simply that Louis was being a bit disingenuous, which is what I always felt. I always felt that there was something, I always read between the lines. And I bet some of you did too who have read it. I always thought there was something more going on between the lines. I, I felt like there had to be more to the story. So thank goodness the novels were already out, both of them by the time I kind of came to them. Although I may have read it and don't remember because I was very widely read by the age of 12, but I can't remember most of what I read at that time. Unless you start reading it and you're like, wait a second, this is familiar. I'm not exactly sure the first time I read Interview with the Vampire is all I know. But the vampire Lestat, I think like a lot of us, actually made it, I think, an even bigger impression on me, frankly. Because who doesn't like Lestat? I mean, come on. The Brat Prince, that's where that really came out. And it was also written in first person. That one is when Lestat took over the narration. So it's, it's pretty interesting. It was, it was a different style. 1989. Overthrow of Romanian dictator Nicolae Sikiscu opens Transylvania to Dracula enthusiasts. Nancy Collins wins a Bram Stoker Award for her vampire novel, Sunglasses After Dark. 1991. Vampire the Masquerade is the most successful of vampire role-playing games and released by White Wolf. 1992, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is directed by Francis Ford Coppola, opens. Oh, you know we love it. Andrei Chikatilo of Rostov, Russia, is sentenced to death after killing and vampirizing some 55 people. Okay, that's the one we're going to Google. How did he vampirize people? We have to look that up. Hang on, hang on. You're hearing it here live. You're hearing it. I'm going to highlight this. It's my book. I can do that if I fucking want to. Where are we? Where were we? 1992, Andre, we have to read about that. 55 people, damn, he was prolific. 1994, the film version of Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire opens with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. Y'all know that. 1995, in May, the International Transylvania Society of Dracula sponsors the World Dracula Conference in Romania. 1996, members of a vampire quote, uh, cult led by Rod Farrell, are arrested for the murder of two people in Florida. They were tried and convicted. 1997. The centennial publication of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula occasions a flurry of activity through 1997 into 1998, including the publication of a number of commemorative books, many television programs, and the issuance of postage stamps in Canada, Ireland, United Kingdom, and United States. June 13 to 15th, Dracula Centenary is held in Whitby, England. I think uh, my, my English friends out there, you go to that something there every year, don't you? Uh, you go to Whitby. It's like a gothic thing. Uh, I've, I know I've seen you post about it. It is sponsored by the Whitby Dracula Society. August 13, serial killer Ali Reza Kashri Kuran Kordiya, known as the Tehran Vampire, is publicly executed in Iran. August 14 to 17, Dracula 97, a centennial celebration, is the largest of several events commemorating the 100th anniversary of the publication of Dracula, and it's held in Los Angeles. It's sponsored by American and Canadian chapters of the Transylvania Society of Dracula and the Count Dracula Fan Club. Whew. This book is pretty much where that stops. I think that's probably good enough. I want to tell you now, we're going to flip uh, things that are associated with vampires, okay? We're just going to random page flip here. Aconite. 
which is another name for wolfsbane or monkshood. See, some of these things kind of overlapped, like you hear about silver for werewolves, but it also has been mentioned at times for vampires. Aconite, you know, is another thing. It is a poisonous plant believed by the ancient Greeks to have arisen from the mouth of Cerebus, the three-headed uh, dog that guards the entrance of Hades, while under the influence of Hecate, the goddess of magic and the underworld. It is later noted as one of the ingredients of the ointment that witches put on their body to fly in their sabbats. And in Dracula, Spanish 1931, aconite was substituted for garlic as the primary plant used to repel a vampire. I had mentioned briefly uh, Africa, African tribes, and not not exactly having vampires. They've they've not really been known for it, in spite of a, a lot of other mythologies they have to have any prominent belief in vampires. Uh, Montague Summers did um, a survey of vampirism around the world in 1920s and could find only two examples. There was the Assasabansum. I know I'm saying that wrong. I'm so sorry. Assasabansum and the Obayifo. Since Summers, there has, as of this publication, there was very little work done to explore that. The Abayifo, which was unknown to Summers at the time, was actually the Ashanti name for a West African vampire that reappeared under similar names in the mythology of most of the neighboring tribes. Uh, example, among the, the Homines, the vampire was known as Asiman. The Obayifo was a witch living incognito in the community. So as I earlier mentioned, it's they're actually witches, but they have vampiric traits. The process of uh, becoming a witch was an acquired trait. There was no genetic link. So there was no way to tell who might be a witch. They weren't born one. Secretly, the witch was able to leave the body, their body, and travel at night as a glowing ball of light. Witches attacked people, especially children, and sucked their blood. Sounds like a vampire to me. They also had the ability to uh, suck juice from fruits and vegetables. The Asasa Bonsam was a vampire-like monster species found in the folklore of the Ashanti people of Ghana in Western Africa. In a brief description uh, provided by someone named R. Sutherland Rattray, the Asasa Bonsam was a humanoid in appearance had a set of iron teeth, <laughs> ouch, lived deep in the forest and was rarely encountered, thank God. It sat on treetops and allowed its legs to dangle downward using its hook-shaped feet to capture unwary passerby. <laughs> Somebody needs to make a movie of that. Maybe they have. Uh, working among the tribes of uh, Niger River Delta area, Arthur Glenn Leonard found a belief that witches left their homes at night to hold meetings with demons and to plot the death of neighbors. Sounds familiar. Death was accomplished by gradually sucking the blood of the victim through some supernatural and invisible means. And the effects of blood sucking was done so skillfully that the victim could feel the pain, but they didn't know why they were having pain. And it would eventually, of course, prove fatal. Leonard believed that witchcraft was, in rea reality, a very sophisticated system of poisoning. Because, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these things, okay, like the Lamia of Greece, one of the reasons for it could have been, you know, the 
perils of childbirth, which a lot of it still happens today. A lot of women still die in childbirth. They still have a lot of complications. So think of, especially back then, without the hospitals and the doctors and the, and the technology that we have now, how, how much worse it was. Uh, so some of these things can come out of other events and other beliefs. It's, it's a very psychological thing. Now, if we flip some more here, doing a little, there is aluka, which is a word for leech in ancient Hebrew. The word appeared in the Jewish Bible in Proverbs 30, 15, where it was variously translated as leech or horse leech. It was derived from an Arabic word, aluka, with an H at the end, meaning to hang to. In Syria and Israel, there are several species of leeches, one of which would attach itself to the neck of horse as they drank from streams. Others dwelt in stagnant waters, cling to the legs of any, much like any leech, you know. Some have suggested that the cryptic expression in Proverbs, Proverbs, the leech has two daughters, give, give. In fact, might not refer to a common leech, but a mythological vampire figure, a Syrian Hebrew derivation of the Arabic ghoul, which sucked blood and dined on the flesh of the dead. During the 19th century, such an interpretation was offered by several biblical scholars. However, it's usually a minority interpretation and some people don't really at this point think that that's legitimate, but I think it's very interesting because of course it is. There is, uh, if we want to touch upon psychic vampirism in New England, as early as 1871, pioneer anthropologist Edward B. Tyler, in his work Primitive Culture, proposed a definition of vampirism, possibly with New England cases in mind. He wrote, Vampires are not mere creations of groundless fancy, but causes conceived in spiritual form to account for specific facts of wasting disease. So in this interpretation, basically, vampirism occurred when the soul of a dead man goes out from its buried corpse and sucks the blood of living men. The victim becomes thin, languid, bloodless, and falls into rapid decline and dies. He also noted the corpse, thus supplied by its returning soul with blood, is imagined to remain unnaturally fresh and supple and ruddy. His definition of vampirism was close to what had become known as psychic vampirism. It was almost identical to the definition proposed by the French uh, physical researcher Z.J. Pierart during the 1860s, and it was popular in occult circles for the rest of the 1800s. It differed from the idea of Eastern European vampire, which was believed to be a revived corpse that attacked living people from whom it sucked blood. This belief... Uh, uh, discovered by Stetson underlies the practice of removing and burning the heart of a diseased diseased deceased diseased and deceased <laughs> tuberculosis pa patient and it could probably be described as a form of psychic vampirism uh, I yeah there's um, you know a lot of the different practices around the vampire hysteria and all that. And I'm going to plug my book again, Paris Immortal, Paris Immortal series. One of the fun things I got to do, because let's face it, one of the reasons I wrote it is I wanted to write something I would want to read. And um, I wanted to do it my way. And, uh, you know, there's a point where a vampire is having a discussion with a human and I call the scene as basically Vampire 101 because he gets to ask him shit, you know. And one of my favorite things is 
it's I make it a little bit comedic is, you know, what's with the stakes in the heart? I'm totally digressing here, but just thinking of the different ways that they would dispose of them. You know, stake through the heart, there's nothing mystical about it, you guys. Although it's become as if it's mystical or if it's specific to vampires. But let's think about this now. Would anyone live if you put a stake through their heart? No, they wouldn't. You don't have to be a vampire for that to fucking kill you, right? Most often, it wasn't even always in the heart. It might just go through their belly or they would be buried face down and it would go through their backs. And the whole purpose was to make them stay in the damn ground. You're trying to pin them down. Uh, but there are also examples of people being decapitated and having their hearts cut out, not staked, but cut out. Um, garlic sometimes was worn around the neck, not so much specifically as like, ooh, vampires hate garlic, as corpses smell terrible, you guys. Death smells nasty. Garlic smells better. Yeah, I know. Not that exciting, is it? On the other hand, garlic in general was thought to ward off evil, and I think the flowers of garlic uh, quote roses like garlic roses so it wasn't even specific necessarily to to vampires it was a general belief as was a lot of the things that that surrounded vampires in the first place you you've all seen the films here goes my little side rant people who argue about vampires not being able to go into the sun i think i mentioned this before it's not that's not original but that's when all the scary ungodly creatures come out right that's when all the scary things go bump in the night that's why vampires were considered nocturnal. But in literature, it was not that way originally. And in folk tales, they didn't necessarily expire in the sun always. That's film. Movies did that. But again, as I've said before, it does make for some cool effects. And it's an interesting weakness. It can be, a, a, you know, you can't have something so powerful that has no weakness at all. That there's no story there. Just like Superman. I'm going to I'm going to get flamed for this probably but in some ways he's kind of boring because he's too freaking powerful. So you had to come up with a kryptonite. You have to have something. So sunlight as a kryptonite for vampires later on is not a bad idea. I just totally wandered all over the place with that idea, but there you go. There are blood disorders, there are, you know, anemia, there are albino people. There's all kinds of things that could describe why did people think they were vampires, besides, of course, religious hysteria. There is also the fact that bodies were not embalmed and people did not understand decomposition. All of those things were uh, explained by decomposition. Now, you might wonder... Have there ever been any animal vampires? Well, maybe you weren't, but now you are. On occasion, animal vampires, stories about them, have, have popped up even as early as 1810. And usually around uh, in 1810, it was uh, between uh, England and Scotland, uh, the border between. There were stories of sheep, sometimes as many ten a night, having their jugular vein cut out and their blood drained. I mentioned this. The best-known incident reported by Charles Fort, which concerned a rash of sheep killings near Cavan, Ireland, 1874. 42 instances of sheep having their throats cut and blood drained, but no flesh consumed, so no zombie. No zombie here, no wolf, right? Only the blood. It was, no, it was, uh, it was recorded. 
Near the dead sheep, there were the footprints of a dog-like animal. Finally, a dog that they thought might have been the vampiric dog who did this was shot. At that point, it should have been over, right? However, sheep kept dying and more dogs were shot. And of course, I'm feeling really sorry for the dogs right now, you you know, but they were scared and they thought that's what was doing it. Reports then started to come in from Limerick, which was more than 100 miles away. These accounts ended in both communities without any final resolution. It's an unsolved mystery, y'all. I'm just going like, man, here's some podcast, podcast episodes galore. In 1905, there was a similar spate of sheep killings in England near Badminton in Gloucester. These incidents have become now part of UFO lore, which you might have already been connecting that, but yes, there it is. And another famous event involved possible animal vampires was the cutting of the throat of Snippy the Horse in Colorado in September 1967. How does... Wait. Do they literally mean cutting? Because... uh, are you telling me now that, that that animal stood up and had a knife in its hand and it has thumbs too? Come on. There are novels that have featured animal vampires. There is the famous Ken Johnson's Hounds of Dracula, 1977, also released as Dracula's Dog. And it was made into a movie, Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. Some readers may be familiar with the vampire rabbit Benicula which is a subject of several books by James Howe and Deborah Howe. And then, of course, there's Count Duckula, the star of an animated television series and a Marvel comic book. Both Benicula and Duckula were vegetarians. <laughs> Shall we now skip over to what vampires look like? Because they're not all created equal, and you've seen that in films. They're not all gorgeous like Lestat. Any discussion of the appearance of the vampire, you you need to take into account the different types. Vampires in the 80s and 90s have a distinct trend towards the normal appearance and allows them to fit in with human society, right? They have almost no distinguishing characteristics, some of them, uh, except for maybe fangs. And they may be retractable and they might only show when they're feeding. So this contemporary vampire is sort of a throwback to vampire characters of pre-Dracula, pre-Dracula literary vampires. There was little in the appearance of Lord Ruthven, Varney the Vampire, or Carmilla that, that made anyone suspicious. They didn't really look different. But it's also still, in modern times, based on Dracula, as developed for stage by Hamilton Dean, and especially Bela Lugosi. He, Hamilton Dean probably should be credited with the domestication of Dracula, that, which, you know, in other words, made him uh, an acceptable guest at your, at your uh, events in, say, Victorian British society. You know, he wore the, the, the suit and the tuxedo and the cape and he had manners, you know, and etc. The evening clothes. Bela Lugosi in the movie Dracula, 1931, was this image. And Bela gave Dracula the Eastern European accent and the slick back hairdo. The thing, of course, about that is, is that 
Bela didn't speak English when he came here. And when he was first doing Dracula, he had to, he just repeated the lines, learned them in English without necessarily always understanding them. That would be more for the stage performance, but, and it was just his normal accent. So to say that he can be credited with giving it to him, uh, uh, maybe this is semantics, but it's better to say he is why people thought that Dracula sounded like that because that's how he sounded. I believe it was his idea to slick his hair back though. And some of it was um, just a, a, a way to, it, it was a stage look. It was a stage look. Christopher Lee is the first one to have shown fangs, at least in American cinema. He added the fangs and the bloodshot eyes and the, Bela Lugosi, I think sometimes people just imagine it, you know, because you think of it that way. Bela Lugosi never, ever, ever had fangs. But he gave you the hypnotic stare, right? He gave you that hypnotic stare and the accent and the cape. But Christopher Lee gave you fangs. And of course, I have the film in which he busts out with the bloody big fangs and the close-up and the bloodshot eyes. And it was Horror of Dracula in 1968. That is where you got that. However, this modern image, with the exception of the extended canine teeth, is actually quite different from both that of Dracula, as presented in Bram Stoker, and the vampire folklore. In folklore, in le at least in Eastern European incarnation, was a corpse, right? But a corpse notable for several uncorpse-like characteristics. The body might be bloated and extended so that the skin was tight like a drum, because that's what would happen to the body, right? When it was uh, decomposing. It would have extended fingernails, but they didn't grow. It's that the skin and everything would then would then shriek away. That's, that's a wife's tale. It can appear that they grew or that your hair grew. It's because after you bloat and then your body shrinks back away up close to the skeleton, then your hair and your nails are going to look longer. It would be dressed in their burial clothes, of course, and maybe not, you know, a cape and evening suit, unless that's what you buried them in, and it would reek of death. And of course, there are wonderful vampire novels uh, where people have gone with that, you know, and the, the rotting, stinking, or okay, if you know Let the Right One In, the original Swedish version, uh, the book, the film, I have not seen the series. I don't usually get too, uh, too upset about some changes, but when I read the uh, the description of the brand new series to me they had already removed a huge chunk of what makes let the right one in what it is in the first place you know the main character the little vampire is supposed to be about 200 years old and in this one they are only about 10 and that just ruined it for me right there but I digress Ellie or Eli in let the original let the right one in starts to particularly smell really bad and look bad when they need blood. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you didn't quite realize it, go back and watch it again. Basically kind of starts to, I maybe would compare it to rot, you know, starts to suffer. Uh, it starts decomposing perhaps because even, uh, even the friend she makes, uh, Oscar, kind of remarks about the smell. And uh, they go out and drink blood and they're better. Now, Dracula, the most famous, of course, for a lot of people, 
is is described in the second chapter of the book, dressed in black clothes, uh, a profuse amount of hair, eyebrows massive and bushy, heavy mustache, skin was pale, hair in the palms of his hands, and long fingernails. Uh, and then very noticeable were extended canines that protruded over his lower lips when his mouth was closed. So they kind of stuck out there like an overbite. Eyes were blue, though they would flash red when, they, when he was angry or upset. He was very mature of years, though he would get younger as the novel goes on. John Carradine, who did the stage productions that I mentioned before, Dracula in the 50s, was actually probably closest to Dracula of the novel. Uh, but, you know, also um, Bram Stoker's Dracula with Gary Oldman, they definitely make him look like an, an exceedingly eccentric looking old man with the with the prince Princess Amidala hair. I love that movie. Don't hate me for that. But come on. You know I'm right. <laughs> the big Princess Amidala type hair. But he also gets younger as the movie goes on. I have already been speaking for an hour just, uh, you know... I mean, this encyclopedia, if you want to get it, is on Amazon by J. Gordon Melton. There's the one I have has a David from Lost Boys on it. Another seminal vampire flick that, you know, that's where you first really see vampires. Just they're rock stars and they're young and they're like, yeah, we're partying. We're having a good time. We love it. And it was campy and it was great. Um... I could just keep going on. You know, it tells you about Elizabeth Bathory. If you want to have the quintessential... Do you hear that? I mean, it's freaking huge indexes. This tells you, at least up to the date, that it was made, okay? Uh, all of the fandoms, it's got, it gives you links in the back. It's got an index. It lists movies. It lists characters. Armand is in here. It, you know, it's alphabetical. It lists, uh, you know, true crime stuff. Jackula. Here, I'm just randomly flipping open. An Italian adult comic book of the 1970s and possibly the most successful vampire comic book of all time, Jackula ran for 327 issues from 1968 to 82 and additional 129 reprint issues from 82 to 84, 1982 to 84. It got its name from the female vampire whose adventures were featured in the pages. You heard, I'm just reading this from the book. According to the storyline, Jackula became a vampire after being bitten by another vampire in 1835 in Transylvania. She eventually becomes so proficient, such as learning how to live in the sunlight without being hurt, she is elected as Vampire Queen. According to the mythology of the stories, vampires are in league with the devil of course who uses them in pursuit of his long-term goal to discover jesus christ's grave and thus prove to the world that his resurrection is a myth oh my goodness i bet the i bet the really religious people had campaigns against that now don't you want to read it quite apart from satan's plan however jacula had a number of remarkable adventures including encounters with frankenstein jack the ripper and the marquis de sade I do think the Marquis would have very much enjoyed vampires. And it was also with the assistance of a mortal lover that she had, Carlo Verdier. Jacula was created by a group of comic artists who operated as the Studio Gioletti. And it was published by Reggi, which is later now uh, Ediper, Ediper, 
<laughs> you listening to me right now trying to sound this out. It a periodici? Anyway. Oh, yes, and I called it. Here we go. The publisher was continually harassed because of, especially in the 1960s, the pornographic nature of the publication. Jacqueline was was most often pictured with no clothes. Public protest brought the series to an end. I thought it was going to be for for uh, the satanic stuff, but no, no, no. We just don't like you naked. <laughs> we don't like you naked. I'm going to... What was the thing we were going to uh, look up about the one particular... I highlighted it. All right. Shall we go ahead? Maybe this will have to be more than one uh, part. I figured this might be a one or two part thing. Shall we look up, it was Andre Chikatilo. And also if I make this more than one part, you can maybe tell me. See, I, I decided I didn't really want to go just with the common like, well, they first were the here and then you have Bram Stoker and Bram Stoker got his ideas from here, la 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 la. I wanted to maybe give you different little obscure facts and timelines. Andre Chicola. Oh, pops right up. We'll just go to good old Wikipedia. Why not? Born October 16, 1936. Died February, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Oh my God, this is actually kind of modern. 1994. Was a Soviet serial killer. Nicknamed the Butcher of Rostov. The Rostov Ripper and the Red Ripper. Sexually assaulted, murdered, mutilated at least 52 women and children between 1978 and 1990. In the Russian SFSR, the Ukrainian SSR, and the Uzbek SSR. Chikatilo confessed to 56 murders, was tried for 53 of them in April of 1992. Convicted and sentenced to death for 52 of the murders in October 1992, although the Supreme Court of Russia ruled in 1993 that insufficient evidence existed to prove his guilt in nine of them. He was executed by gunshot. Firing squad. So as a child, he was born in Lyablychna in the Sumy Oblast, I know I'm butchering that, of the Ukrainian SSR. At the time he was born, the Ukraine was in the grip of famine caused by Joseph Stalin. His parents were collective farm laborers who lived in a one-room hut. They got no wages for their work, but received the right to cultivate a plot of land behind the hut. God, that's terrible. They seldom had food. He himself uh, later claimed to not have eaten bread until the age of 12 and said that his family often had to eat grass and leaves. Throughout his childhood, uh, Chikatilo was repeatedly told by his mother, Anna, that prior to his birth, an older brother of his name, Stefan, had, at the age of four, been kidnapped and cannibalized by starving neighbors. So I think I'm beginning to see reasons why he might be a little bent. And it was never established whether this actually occurred. But still... Chikatilo remembered his childhood as uh, being, you know, marked by poverty, ridicule, hunger, and war. When the Soviet Union went into the Second World War, Chikatilo's father, Roman, was conscripted into the army, Red Army. He was later taken prisoner after being wounded. Between 41 and 1944, 
Chikatilo then witnessed some of the effects of the Nazi occupation of Ukraine, which he described as horrors. He said he witnessed bombings, fires, and shootings, and he and his mother would hide in cellars and ditches. They were upon occasion forced to watch their own hut burn to the ground. He and his mother shared the same bed. He was a chronic bedwetter, and his mother beat him for it every time. 1943, he got a sister, Tatiana. But because Chikatilo's father had been conscripted in 41, he couldn't have been the father, so who knows who the father was. Many Ukrainian women were unfortunately raped by German soldiers during the war. So that could have been where Tatiana came from. Chikatilo went to school by 1944. He was shy and studious, but he was also weak and attended school in clothing that probably made fun of him. His, uh, his belly was kind of swollen from famine. In his adolescence, he was actually a model student and ardent communist, which probably a lot of them were then. He was editor of a school newspaper at age 14, chairman of the Pupils Communist Party two years later, very much into reading communist literature. He organized street marches. He claimed learning did not come easy to him due, due to headaches and a poor memory, but he's the only one that graduated with excellent grades, and that was in 1954. Around puberty, he discovered he had impotence, chronic impotence. Oh gosh, was he an incel too? He was shy around women. His first crush at age 17 um, was a girl named Lilia that he met through the school newspaper you know, when he was uh, working at the school newspaper. But he was nervous and he never asked her for a date. But, okay, trigger warnings. I didn't know this was going to get this gross, y'all. I mean, as if the murder isn't bad, but Chikatilo jumped an 11-year-old girl, 11-year-old friend of his younger sister, wrestled her through the ground, ejaculated as the girl struggled in his grasp. So right there you have it. He was turned on. I don't want to say turned on because it's not about sex, but they were fighting and this did it for him because that's what some serial killers quote-unquote get off on. So that right there is your hint. He did actually do some army service. I think that in a lot of places they're required to. He was married in 1963, but the marriage was arranged apparently, even though he did like her. He said that their sex life was minimal, was still having impotence problem. I'm not gonna get into that. That's very graphic. Sexual assaults uh, began in 1973. In one incident, he swam towards a 15-year-old girl and groped her breasts and genitals, ejaculating as she struggled. So there it is. He 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 was already. You can you can see. You know that this is going to be a pattern. I'm trying to find the part where they say he was a vampire. You know why does that say that? Here we go. Oh, the sun. Well, you know this will be bombastic. He was accused of cannibalism and uh, was widely referred to as a cannibal in the Russian press. I, 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 that might have just been a turn of phrase in the encyclopedia where he said he vampired people. That's why I looked him up because I just don't know why they're saying this. I'm, I'm trying to find it for you as we record. He was a teacher too for a while, which is how he got close to some of the kids. He um, assaulted some of his students. It's gross. This guy's gross, y'all. Definitely not the 6060 vampires. Definitely not. Well, where are we here? What else should we talk about? 
that is not sexy you know i think that'll be good for now um so this like i said is a more shall we say clinical sort of podcast because i i just wanted to uh, a reason that i read off all of that timeline and all of those and there's so much more but a reason i read those off is basically to let you know how ubiquitous vampires are and have been even when we don't have popular tv shows even when you know we have no tv shows uh like we we haven't for a while even when there aren't a plethora of films they have been ubiquitous they have been there maybe since the dawn of time and they've had different iterations before they kind of settled into ones that we commonly recognize and it'll be interesting to see where we go from here with AMC for example doing this entire immortal universe it'll be interesting to see how many other people decide it's time for them to do their vampire shot my novels I have to say I think it's very lucky timing I didn't plan it I couldn't have planned it um, I, I was somewhat aware that the show was coming out but you know I get my work done when my work is done and I had decided to completely retype five novels the Kindle is 1626 pages y'all I just retyped the whole thing all five books that started that were first published the first one in 2008 by Snowbooks in London and we did the last one around 2016 I had a one gap there from the fourth one to the fifth one where I put out two other novels I also have some other vampire fiction not every single one of my books has vampires but I do have horror romance etc and I just happened to finish and then the show came out I'm like oh my god it's really good this might be lucky for me <laughs> this might be lucky for me and so uh here we are it'll be interesting to see what else goes on and there's all kinds of psychological studies. Maybe I could look that up for a part two because I'm trying to do this a bit differently than documentaries usually do on vampires, if you will. I could probably look into some of the psychology behind why do vampires get popular at certain times versus why are zombies popular at certain times because it does cycle and and I can't remember them now but I have read in the past articles and essays about how it does tie into what we are going through in the world some of it might be, seem obvious when you look back at folklore that it could have to do with famine it could have to do with death in childbirth it could be connected to tuberculosis it could be to connected to civil unrest or or economics or just the psychology of what the world is going on through or and of course in the past it would be more hysteria and they would be afraid of it and want to stop the vampirism and now of course it, it turned into something that we love because of course because it just does and and as you can see by some of the names I listed off of people who actually there are people who actually thought they were vampires I know I've spoken of them before there was oh I forgot his name I think there was a guy in England who literally thought he was a vampire um it's just morbidly fascinating in certain respects and it's of course it's a metaphor for all kinds of things when you think about the blood sucking that that can be a metaphor for sex oral sex 
you you can argue and I, I'm pretty sure it has been said like Victorian times or before or like Bram Stoker the exchange of blood took the place of sex because they, they they wouldn't or they couldn't write about sex and that's one of the ways around it but it's but it's a whole lot of things it's obviously exceedingly intimate why do vampires terrify people on the one hand but at the same time intrigue people you think about you know there are other monsters that ripping people apart you would think is the worst thing in the world werewolves their wolf and all of that but for a lot of people vampires are the scariest of all because it is so personal and so intimate somebody who could just slip up on you you know quietly and and be the wolf in disguise and then just rip your throat out or they could be sexy sexy and lull you into you are the sheep you know it's just fascinating and i'm i think i've been fascinated with the quote unquote monsters i i I read a lot of there was a lot of stephen king on the shelf for sure i read everything like i said by the time i was about 12 i literally just about read the entire library encyclopedias and all but i refer to stephen king as uncle stevie for one thing if that tells you anything and watched horror films and this and that and always had some sympathy because a lot of the time they didn't choose to be what they are and they couldn't really help it you know but then someone like Lestat to bring this full circle from where I started because it's very much in the media right now with the new show someone like that comes along who makes it look you know, on the one hand, he, well, Lestat has fucking issues. Maybe he's not the best example. But on the one hand, he seems to revel in the violence and this and that. But on the other, he obviously did not choose. And he was interesting because you can kind of go back and forth with it. Like, you freaking monster. But then on the other hand, you would have great sympathy for him. Maybe, you know, you, you have so many different personalities now that you can choose from. And there's so many themes you can explore and that's why it's so intriguing not only to write it or create films but to read it and watch it because just so many themes and then of course if you have you can come from any time frame and you can have flashbacks and you can you can be historical you can just explore so much shit it's so intriguing and i'm going to stop here and i hope you have enjoyed this and i hope that maybe you'll give me some feedback on twitter at podpinky I will put some pictures up over the next several days of different vampires and obscure ones and famous ones, maybe on the Instagram pinky underscore podcast. Uh, Find me and let me know maybe what, what should I talk about if I do a part two and like it, not the obvious, but maybe, maybe I can pick now. Maybe this could be the beginning of a series where let me pick someone I haven't done before or we talk about this movie or that movie or this serial killer, but any, but vampiric, or maybe the next one should be where werewolves. I talked about silver and aconite wolfsbane and how things get overlapped between the two at times. Maybe we can talk about the similarities and differences in the folklore with werewolves and stuff like that. I don't know. Hit me up there. Twitter pod pinky. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this more encyclopedic podcast episode interesting. It's a lot to take in, I know. 
because I've been the one sitting here talking and now I need to edit this. And I am also considering to either read, I think I'm not ambitious enough to do an entire reading of Dracula for you on a podcast, but I might dig out some of my short stories such as Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu uh, and maybe Le Mot Amoureuse, which is Loving Lady Death. Um, maybe I'll read you some of the shorter stories for a Halloween special. Maybe that's really where I should just go next. I will read you some shorter stories for a bonus episode. Go check out my book, Paris Immortal, A Vampire Tale. I reissued the first one with a new cover separately. You can get it for $1.99. I did also give out some free versions, may do some more free promos. The Omnibus Halloween comes out Halloween. You can pre-order the Kindle version right now if you like. $9.99. Just $9.99 for five books, 1,626 pages. I think that's a bargain. And there will be a, a special physical copy that will also come out. But it ain't going to be $9.99, my friends, okay? Because I work my ass off. You can also check out Dark Wings, which was my latest brand new book. And that, I think, should be that. <laughs> go get your fangs in, baby. Get your fangs on and go watch Interview with the Vampire AMC. So delicious. 